You'll need your Bibles open to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning in verse 51, and reading through the end of the chapter, Luke 9, 51 and following. And before I read the scripture, I'd like for us to pray together. Would you bow with me? I invite you to take a breath and just to simply uh, have that sense of centering and focus of being totally present, maybe letting everything else on your mind uh, go into the background and just be aware of God's presence. Be aware of this unique opportunity to worship and take a few moments and perhaps form your own prayer of confession or petition, a special praise or thanks, or maybe just to be silent in God's presence for a moment. Our loving God, you are holy and lifted up. You are altogether different from us and yet so tenderly, intimately involved in our lives and concerned about our well-being. We worship you in spirit and truth. We worship you as the high God, the only God of our lives. And we thank you for your creative power, the beauty of the world and the beauty of inner space as well, as you continue to transform us through the power of the risen Christ. So today we want to confess our sins and acknowledge our many, many shortcomings and come to you in brokenness, praying that the blood of Jesus might cleanse and renew us and forgive us and fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit. And then we pray uh, on behalf of a world that needs you for all of our mission partners, for uh, all of our uh, work across the world, for uh, our military personnel, that you might bless them and bless their families. We pray for nations that might find ways of peace, for refugees and for those struggling. We pray for those today ravaged by flood, those ravaged by fire, for all of those emergency workers and care responders. And we ask today that you bless our community right here in Jefferson City and Cole County with the special needs and the special heartaches that are even within this congregation for the grieving that is taking place, for the, for the struggle to find life direction, for the dealing with illness and dealing with life transitions. You are the loving, liberating Christ. You are the healing, hope-filled Savior. You are the energizing, comforting Holy Spirit. So come among us and bless us. And now as we attempt to think about a very difficult passage of Scripture, one that deals with costly discipleship, how we pray that you'll give us honest hearts and honest ears to hear you. How glibly we want to hear all of the smooth promises of Scripture and how reluctant we are to hear the challenges. So give us understanding. Open our lives. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now I'd like to read from Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. And if you're able, would you stand, please? And we will uh, listen prayerfully as I read aloud God's word. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, 
I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go bury, go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In the 20th century, there was a uh, Czech playwright by the name of Carol Schwink. And he wrote a very fascinating satire, a fictional work, entitled The Last Cyclist. And it was a work that was, as I said, satire and, and fiction, uh, describing a world in which the king needed someone to blame for all the things that were going wrong in his kingdom. And so he decided to blame everybody who rode bicycles. And so the name of the play is The Last Cyclist. And so he made a rule that you would be banished from the kingdom if you had any ancestor back six generations who had been anything else other than a pedestrian. If any of your ancestors six generations back had ever ridden a bicycle, you were banished from the kingdom. The last cyclist. It's a contagious disease, isn't it? Finding a way to hate entire groups of people. Finding a way to dismiss entire populations or cohort groups based on whatever reason. It happens all the time. It happened in Jesus' day. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were headed to Jerusalem. Jesus was moving toward the city of destiny. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem to give his life for us. And he sent his uh, disciples on ahead to prepare the way. And they... uh, we're in a Samaritan village, and the Samaritan said, no way, you're not coming through here. You're not welcome here. And you remember a little bit of the history of the hatred between Samaritans and Jews. To make a long story short, it went back to the time of the exile, when the Jewish people were led in that 70 years of captivity. The Samaritans intermarried with the other populations in captivity. So what you had over the decades and over the centuries were ages and ages of hatred. It was racial hatred, it was religious hatred, and it was political hatred. And this just grew and grew and grew. And so John and James wanted to do their patriotic duty. They said, hey boss, you want us to nuke them? Hey boss, you want us to call down fire from heaven? No wonder they were called the sons of thunder, right? You want us to just finish them off? And Jesus said, no, the kingdom doesn't work that way. But that's the way this kind of cluster hatred works. Wendell Berry is a writer who has talked about the condemnation by categories, where we just condemn entire groups. We don't have to get to know people. We don't have to ask them what their thoughts are, what their heart is. We don't have to get to know them. We just condemned by category. And he says, 
You know, it's a cowardly kind of hatred. With a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, Wendell Berry says, it takes courage to hate somebody personally. You have to have a reason. You have to deal with cause. You have to, you have to speak to them face-to-face. But he said, a coward's way out is to hate by category, to just condemn by entire group. And the scripture this morning reminds us that discipleship is costly. Following Jesus is costly because it requires us to lay down our biases. It requires us to lay down our biases of the way we'd like the world to be or how we think the world is and to accept the way it really is. And that's, that's a costly kind of discipleship to put those things down. And, and, and just think about it. Put ourselves in the place of John and James. How often do we, how often do we put our political biases and preferences ahead of the kingdom of God? And how many times do we, do we destroy others with a sense of our own righteousness? Or our zeal hurts the kingdom cause? Or when our methods and attitudes toward other people do not reflect the spirit of the loving Savior Jesus Christ who loved everybody? Tough questions. Costly discipleship to lay that stuff down and put Jesus in the kingdom first. Now, if we're going to put ourselves in the position of James and John, let's continue this uncomfortable experiment by putting ourselves in the position of these other three fellows that they met on the way to Jerusalem. Talk about costly discipleship. The first one is sort of glib and uh, shallow. He says, sure, I'll, I'll follow Jesus. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, ah, 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 not so fast. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you really know what you're talking about? That shallow, glib kind of discipleship that says, follow Jesus? That sounds like fun. Think I'll try it. You know, I'm kind of bored with stamp collecting. I think I'll take up another hobby. Follow Jesus? That sounds easy. That sounds exciting. Jesus said, you better stop and think. Then there is the second person. Jesus says to that one, follow me. In verse uh, 59, he says, Lord, I will, but first, let me go bury my father. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom. Now, that sounds very harsh, especially when you consider that in Jewish culture, there was no more sacred duty than for a person to care for parents who had passed and to give them, a, them an appropriate Jewish burial. That was the child's long-standing understood obligation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, helps us at this point because he said this hard saying is a reminder that following Jesus is even more important than custom or tradition or practice or law, 
Following Jesus comes before all of that. And to say that another way, that Jesus is Lord and He has authority to interpret duty for us. When we don't understand our duty or when we think that uh, our duty instructions conflict, is it cultural, is it really scriptural? The ultimate arbiter of all of that is Jesus as Lord. He interprets duty for us. And then this third man. He says, uh, I'll follow you, verse 61, but let me first go say farewell to my family. Now, this guy's a planner. He likes to make lists. He's probably a J on the Myers-Briggs personality test because he likes to have everything organized. He says, now, I'm going to follow you, but here are the things I have to do. And what he has done is reduced discipleship to a checklist of boxes to fill out. He's going to follow Jesus, but he's going to stay in control. He's going to follow Jesus, but he's going to do it on his terms. He's still in charge. Do you know anybody like that? And so that discipleship is no longer a personal relationship of risk, but it is a managed program. A managed program. And did you notice that the last two men use the word first in verse 59? Lord, first let me go bury my father. And then verse 61, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first go say farewell. First, that's a key word, because later in other places in Scripture, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this whole idea of what is first and who is first, the idea of prioritizing, the idea of figuring out what in life is transient and what is permanent, what is provisional and what is permanent. What is first? That's what this text is dealing with. Did you hear the story about the young man in Jefferson City who was sweet on this girl and finally he just poured his heart out one night to her. He said, man, he said, I love you. He said, I, you're first in my life. You're all I can think about. I, I want to make you my number one priority. You are everything to me. And she kind of batted her eyes and kissed him on the cheek and blush. And then he said, by the way, I won't see you for the next couple of weeks because my buddies and I have some free tickets to the Cardinals game. See you around. That didn't really happen, but it could. You know, we talk the big talk on Sunday about how much we love Jesus. And then it's sort of when life opportunities come up, it's see you around. And we have to figure some things out. Stop and think about this. Love never grows without sacrifice. You think about that in your marriage. You think about that in a, in a close friendship. You think about, it, about that, what that means in your Christian life and why you may or may not be growing spiritually at this point. Love never grows without sacrifice. Love never becomes passionate until we give up some freedoms because of it. Love never grows until we painfully reprioritize and put that one first. It's exactly what Jesus was talking about. In the early 16th century, 
the famous Spanish explorer Hernando Cortez brought his ships to the shore of Veracruz, Mexico. It had been an arduous journey over the seas. They arrived and set foot on soil. And suddenly he saw it in the faces of all of his sailors, all of his ship's crews, the terror. We've come through so much, but the hardest part remains. Here is a land that may not be welcoming. Here is a new continent that we know nothing about. Here are people who may reject us. And he knew in his heart that his men were thinking, we wish we'd never started. This is too much. I'd like to turn back. And so Cortez made a leadership choice. He burned all of the ships. There was no going back. There was no going back. And that's the essence of discipleship. To come to the place where we cut our ties with all false security in life, all those transient things we've been trusting in, and we completely trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we trust in God for everything. The rearranging of priorities. And Jesus gives a very apt analogy in the very last verse of that chapter, verse 62. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I know a little about that analogy. As a boy growing up on the farm, I did my share of plowing, especially of of breaking new ground. And Dad taught me that the way you plow a straight furrow is by looking ahead. If, if you plow looking back, your furrow is going to look like the Dow Jones Industrial Average chart the last several weeks. Because if you're looking back, you're going to zig and you're going to zag everywhere. The only way to plow a straight furrow is to fix your eyes on something in the distance that is permanent and to keep your eyes on that. To keep our eyes on Jesus. That is the only way we plow straight as disciples. To keep our eyes on Jesus. Now, I've learned to ask quirky questions of Bible passages. So here's one. I wonder what happened to these three guys. I wonder what happened to them. Do you, um, do you think they just walked away sadly? You know, the scripture doesn't say. Maybe, they, maybe Jesus coached them up. Maybe they got to the place where they could understand discipleship. Or maybe they walked away confused or reluctant. And isn't it interesting that the gospels so often leave these stories open? They're not resolved. The gospels so often leave these stories open as if they're ours to finish. Did you catch that? 
I know it's early, but did you catch that? The Gospels leave these stories open because they are ours to finish.